0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Superstition of Divorce by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 1 with Introductory Note The earliest part of this book appeared in the form of five articles, which came out in The New Witness, at the crisis of the recent controversy in the press on the subject of divorce. Crude and sketchy as they confessedly were, they had a certain rude plan of their own, which I find very difficult to recast even in order to expand. I have therefore decided to reprint the original articles as they stood, save for a few introductory words, and then, at the risk of repetition, to add a few further chapters, explaining more fully any conceptions that may seem to have been too crudely assumed or dismissed. I have set forth the original matter, as it appeared under a general heading, without dividing it into chapters. J. K. Chesterton Chapter 1. The Superstition of Divorce It is futile to talk of reform, without reference to form, to take a case from my own tastes and fancy there is nothing i feel to be so beautiful and wonderful as a window all casements are magic casements whether they open on the foam or the front garden they lie close to the ultimate mystery and paradox of limitation and liberty but if i followed my instincts toward an infinite number of windows it would end in having no walls it would also it may be added incidentally and in having no windows either, for a window makes a picture, by making a picture-frame. But there is a simpler way of stating my more simple and fatal error. It is that I have wanted a window, without considering whether I wanted a house. Now many appeals are being made to us today, on behalf of that light and liberty that might well be symbolized by windows, especially as so many of them concern the enlightenment and liberation of the house in the sense of the home. Many quite disinterested people urge many quite reasonable considerations in the case of divorce as a type of domestic liberation. But in the journalistic and general discussion of the matter, there is far too much of the mind that works backwards and at random, in the manner of all windows and no walls. Such people say they want divorce, without asking themselves whether they want marriage. Even in order to be divorced, it has generally been found necessary to go through the preliminary formality of being married, and unless the nature of this initial act be considered, we might as well be considering hair-cutting for the bald or spectacles for the blind. To be divorced is to be in the literal sense unmarried and there is no sense in a thing being undone when we do not know if it is done. There is perhaps no worse advice nine times out of ten than the advice to do the work that's nearest. It is especially bad when it means, as it generally does, removing the obstacle that's nearest. It means that men are not to behave like men but like mice who nibble at the thing that's nearest. The man, like the mouse, undermines what he cannot understand. Because he himself bumps into a thing he calls it the nearest obstacle, though the obstacle may happen to be the pillar that holds up the whole roof over his head. He industriously removes the obstacle, and in return the obstacle removes him, and much more valuable things than he. This opportunism is perhaps the most unpractical thing in this highly unpractical world people talk vaguely against destructive criticism but what is the matter with this criticism is not that it destroys but that it does not criticize it is destruction without design it is taking a complex machine to pieces bit by bit in any order without even knowing what the machine is for and if a man deals with a deadly dynamic machine on the principle of touching the knob that's nearest he will find out the defects of that cheery philosophy now leaving many sincere and serious critics of modern marriage on one side for the moment great masses of modern men and women who write and talk about marriage are thus nibbling blindly at it like an army of mice when the reformers propose for instance that divorce should be obtainable after an absence of three years the absence actually taken for granted in the first military arrangements of the late european war their readers and supporters could seldom give any sort of logical reason for the period being three years and not three months or three minutes they are like people who should say give me three feet of dog and not care where the cut came such persons fail to see a dog as an organic entity in other words they cannot make head or tail of it and the chief thing to say about such reformers of marriage is that they cannot make head or tail of it. They do not know what it is, or what it is meant to be, or what its supporters suppose it to be. They never look at it, even when they are inside it. They do the work that is nearest, which is poking holes in the bottom of a boat under the impression that they are digging in a garden. This question of what a thing is and whether it is a garden or a boat appears to them abstract and academic. They have no notion of how large is the idea they attack, or how relatively small appear the holes that they pick in it. Thus Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, an intelligent man in other matters, says that there is only a theological opposition to divorce, and that it is entirely founded on certain texts in the Bible about marriages this is exactly as if he had said that a belief in the brotherhood of men was only founded on certain texts in the bible about all men being the children of adam and eve millions of peasants and plain people all over the world assume marriage to be static without having ever clapped eyes on any text numbers of more modern people especially after the recent experiments in america think divorce is a social disease Without having ever bothered about any text, it may be maintained that even in these, or in any one, the idea of marriage is ultimately mystical, and the same may be maintained about the idea of brotherhood. It is obvious that a husband and wife are not visibly one flesh in the sense of being one quadruped. It is equally obvious that Paderewski and Jack Johnson are not twins and probably have not played together at their mother's knee there is indeed a very important admission or addition to be realized here what is true is this that if the nonsense of nietzsche or some such sophist submerged current culture so that it was the fashion to deny the duties of fraternity then indeed it might be found that the group which still affirmed fraternity was the original group in whose sacred books was the text about Adam and Eve. Suppose some Prussian professor has opportunely discovered that Germans and lesser men are respectively descended from two such very different monkeys, that they are in no sense brothers, but barely cousins, German, any number of times removed. And suppose he proceeds to remove them even further with a hatchet, Suppose he bases on this a repetition of the conduct of Cain, saying, Not so much, I am my brother's keeper, as, Is he really my brother? And suppose this higher philosophy of the hatchet becomes prevalent in colleges and cultivated circles, as even more foolish philosophies have done. Then, I agree, it probably will be the Christian, the man who preserves the text about Cain, who will continue to assert that he is still the professor's brother, and that he is still the professor's keeper. He may possibly add that, in his opinion, the professor seems to require a keeper. And that is doubtless the situation in the controversies about divorce and marriage today. It is the Christian Church which continues to hold strongly, when the world for some reason has weakened on it, what many others hold at other times. But even then it is barely picking up the shreds and scraps of the subject to talk about a reliance on texts. The vital point in the comparison is this, that human brotherhood means a whole view of life held in the light of life and defended, rightly or wrongly, by constant appeals to every aspect of life. The religion that holds it most strongly will hold it when nobody else holds it, that is quite true and that some of us may be so perverse as to think a point in favor of the religion. But anybody who holds it at all, will hold it as a philosophy, not hung on one text, but on a hundred truths. Fraternity may be a sentimental metaphor. I may be suffering a delusion when I hail a Montegren peasant as my long-lost brother. As a fact, I have my own suspicion about which of us is that got lost. But my delusion is not a deduction from one text or from twenty. It is the expression of a relation that to me at least seems a reality. And what I should say about the idea of a brother, I should say about the idea of a wife. It is supposed to be very unbusinesslike to begin at the beginning. It is called abstract and academic, principles with which English, etc., etc., it is still in some strange way considered unpractical to open up inquiries about anything by asking what it is i happen to have however a fairly complete contempt for that sort of practicality for i know that it is not even practical my ideal business man would not be one who planked down fifty pounds and said here's hard cash i am a plain man but it is quite indifferent to me whether i am paying a debt or giving alms to a beggar or buying a wild bull or a bathing machine despite the infectious hardiness of his tone i should still in considering the hard cash say like a cabman what's this i should continue to insist priggishly that it was highly practical point what the money was what it was supposed to stand for to aim at or declare what was the nature of the transaction or in short what the devil is the man supposed he was doing I shall therefore begin by asking, in an equally mystical manner, what, in the name of God and the angels, a man getting married supposes he is doing. I shall begin by asking what marriage is, and the mere question will probably reveal that the act itself, good or bad, wise or foolish, is of a certain kind, that it is not an inquiry or an experiment or an accident. It may probably dawn on us that it is a promise." It can be more fully defined by saying, it is a vow. Many will immediately answer that it is a rash vow. I am content for the moment to reply that all vows are rash vows. I am not now defending, but defining vows. I am pointing out that this is a discussion about vows. First, of whether there ought to be vows, and second, of what vows ought to be. Ought a man to break a promise? Ought a man to make a promise? These are philosophical questions. But the philosophic peculiarity of divorce and remarriage, as compared with free love and no marriage, is that a man breaks and makes a promise at the same moment. It is a highly Germanic philosophy, and recalls the way in which the enemy wishes to celebrate his successful destruction of all treaties by signing some more if i were breaking a promise i would do it without promises but i am very far from minimizing the momentous and disputable nature of the vow itself i shall try to show in a further article that this rash and romantic operation is the only furnace from which can come the plain hardware of humanity the cast-iron resistance of citizenship or the cold steel of common sense but i am not denying that the furnace is a fire The vow is a violent and unique thing, though there have been many besides the marriage vow, vows of chivalry, vows of poverty, vows of celibacy, pagan, as well as Christian. But modern fashion has rather fallen out of the habit, and men miss the type for the lack of the parallels. The shortest way of putting the problem is to ask whether being free includes being free to bind oneself, for the vow is a tryst with oneself. I may be misunderstood, if I say, for brevity, that marriage is an affair of honor. The skeptic will be delighted to assent by saying it is a fight, and so it is, if only with oneself. But the point here is that it necessarily has the touch of the heroic, in which virtue can be translated by virtues. Now about fighting in nature, there is an implied infinity, or at least potential infinity. I mean that loyalty in war is loyalty in defeat or even disgrace. It is due to the flag precisely at the moment when the flag nearly falls. We do already apply this to the flag of the nation, and the question is whether it is wise or unwise to apply it to the flag of the family. Of course it is tenable that we should apply it to neither, that misgovernment in the nation or misery in the citizen would make the desertion of the flag an act of reason, and not treason. I will only say here that if this were really the limit of national loyalty, some of us would have deserted our nation long ago. End of chapter 1